Welcome to the Celebrity Estates Wills of the Rich and Famous podcast. In this podcast, we break down high-profile celebrity estate planning cases for advisors and their clients. Most celebrity estate catastrophes are based on the same issues that everyday people face, just with the volume turned up. Our goal is to identify and extract the individual estate planning issues that lie at the heart of each story. We then discuss what advisors should expect and how to avoid common pitfalls. Hosted by WealthManagement.com Senior Editor David Lenock. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of WealthManagement.com's Celebrity Estates, Wills of the Rich and Famous. Yeah, you're still in the right place if you came for Dead Celebrity. We recently rechristened the show, since during a global pandemic, the previous name was somewhat less than sensitive. Don't worry, though, the content and quality of the show will remain the same as before, just under a new banner. For anyone new to the podcast, in each installment, myself and a guest take on a different celebrity estate and attempt to extract some key lessons that planners can apply to their more traditional clients. The idea being that celebrity estate planning catastrophes, although often ridiculous in their details, generally have at their core very basic issues that can just as easily apply to non-famous or fabulously wealthy clients. I'm joined today by Jacqueline Bevilacqua, who I believe is now the first three-time guest of the show, which is very cool. Oh, wow. An honor. Jackie is a trust and estates associate at law firm Katzi Corrins. She has a strong background in estate planning and estate and trust administration for a diverse clientele and significant experience with complex issues of gift, estate, and trust taxation. Jackie also has a strong background in international estate planning, as well as FATCA compliance and pre-immigration tax planning. Thanks for joining us, Jackie. Sure, Dave. Good to be here. Subject of today's episode is Albert C. Barnes. Barnes was an American businessman best known for his massively valuable art collection that he devoted most of his life to curating. The 900-piece collection, which was worth some $25 billion, featured 181 Renoirs, 69 Cezannes, 60 Matisses, 44 Picassos, and 14 Modigliani's, to just give a few highlights. Barnes intensely disliked the elite, air quotes, of the art world, and dedicated his life to providing art education to the less fortunate. He defied convention by grouping his art pieces based on aesthetics and philosophical reasons instead of by artist or period. Henri Matisse said the Barnes Foundation is the only sane place to see art in America. Now, Dr. Barnes never had children, but he took great care to plan for his legacy. In 1922, he created a type of trust agreement called the Trust Indenture. So this trust established the Barnes Foundation, a charitable organization to manage his art gallery as an educational institution in Lower Marion, Pennsylvania. And if that name sounds familiar, that's because it was where Kobe Bryant went to high school. Uh, he spelled out at length in these documents how his art could not be sold, moved, placed on tour, or even rearranged within the gallery itself. He wanted it used primarily for education, but open for the public on a very limited basis. He restricted how it could be viewed, when, only one day a week usually, and how much could be charged to see it. These restrictions also made it very difficult for the Board of Trustees to keep the foundation profitable, or at least that's what they claim. So little by little, they filed court proceedings asking for permission to change the trust provisions. The trustees engaged in expensive litigation in court, arguing that the terms of Dr. Barnes's trust were impossible because of the great cost needed to maintain the collection. And the final blow came in 2004, when a judge ruled that the Barnes Foundation, which now supported by three wealthy and elite charitable foundations and the Pennsylvania Attorney General, could move the entire collection to the Museum District of downtown Philadelphia, right next door to the Philadelphia Museum of Art. For context of how sort of off this is, Barnes had once said, the Philadelphia Museum of Art is a house of artistic and intellectual prostitution. So safe to say, probably not what he wanted. So how could his wishes have been so blatantly disregarded? 
but because of a doctrine of deviation, which is a legal principle that allows a court to effectively rewrite a charitable trust if the purpose becomes impossible to maintain without changes. The trustees argued that there was no financially viable way to keep the art in the building Dr. Barnes created for. The collection could only be maintained, they argued, by permitting the move. And I'm sure the allure of creating a huge tourist attraction by relocating a $25 billion asset to Philadelphia certainly offered no motivation at all. Now there's more twists and turns to this story, which uh, inspired the excellent documentary, The Art of the Steel, and we're not gonna cover them here. Our focus is just how surprisingly easy it is to have estate planning documents, and wills in particular, modified or overturned. So Jackie, how worried should clients be about how close to the letter their estate planning documents will be enforced after they're gone? If someone just leaves a will and everything's going outright to their beneficiaries, I think that clients can essentially rest assured as long as they've picked a, a trustworthy executor that their wishes are going to be carried out. Same thing with a shorter term trust for beneficiaries. For example, you might leave your child or a younger person uh, in trust to a certain age. I think that you can probably guarantee who the trustee is going to be or who the trustee and potential successor will be so that you can have pretty good control over these dispositions. I think where clients do have to worry is, especially in this area with long-term charitable dispositions. You have certain people that you're going to put in charge right after your death, but almost 100 years later, you might have an entirely different board running the organization, different trustees of a trust, and then your vision can start to go awry if you haven't done some really careful planning. Like, What's the difference in this situation between a will and a trust and, and what those different instruments are supposed to do and, and kind of what they can do? They can be quite similar documents depending on the type of will and type of trust. Here, we, in the case of Barnes, we would have a, a will with, which essentially disposes of your estate at your death. And then we have this trust which established his foundation ultimately to hold this art and carry on this educational mission, this charitable mission, um, rather than uh, necessarily run an art museum. So that's very different. And also, you know, obviously uh, your estate isn't going to last forever. The idea is to administer an estate and have it wrapped up within a year or a few years. This other plan in which the Barnes Foundation was held was meant to last ideally in perpetuity or as long as possible. And I think that we should talk a little bit more about the doctrine of deviation too, and how that sort of brought us to where we are today in terms of how have you made your wishes known to your fiduciaries? How have you made your wishes known to your executor if you have a will? And how have you made your wishes known to trustees if you have a trust? Or how have you made wishes known to a charitable corporation that's going to continue beyond your death? Obviously, some methods of making your wishes known are not going to be ultimately legally enforceable. However, when they applied the doctrine of deviation to Barnes, they essentially were trying to anticipate how they could most closely meet Barnes's desired end when circumstances changed. So I think that's something that it's important to talk to clients about is what's your ultimate goal and get that in writing, even if it's not legally enforceable. I think if Barnes had been consulted on this and you know, someone had said, well, it's down to this, we're either gonna move your entire collection right next door to the Philadelphia Museum of Art, move it out of this suburban setting that you chose, change the way that the artwork is presented from what you had designed to something that's perhaps different and you know more accommodating to the general public. Would you rather have it 
moved and your vision changed in that way? Or would you rather sell certain pieces? It's certainly arguable that he might have said, sell certain pieces, or he might have come up with a different way to raise funds to keep the uh, foundation operating as it was. And that's one of the big difficulties when you're dealing with these, these plans that are intended to last in perpetuity, right? Is that that's impossible in a way, and you have to yeah. anticipate not just the various scenarios that could occur over the ensuing rest of time, but also the legal changes that are just, and all that stuff is just impossible for an estate planner to like completely foresee it in any way, no matter how good you are. Right. right. Um, and that's kind of why it's best to sort of build in at certain points, some safe uh, spots here where, where, where things can transfer or where, where things can change a little bit and some flexibility because you know, if the only fact that you know is that things will change, you have no idea right. what the changes are going to be necessarily. Yeah. I mean, hindsight is twenty twenty, but I, I think that if I were assisting with creating this plan, I might ask those questions. If your endowment runs low in 80 years, what changes would you be most okay with if changes had to be made? Because we never know, even if someone gets a $100 million endowment today, the market could crash. You could be invested in something that seems really safe that suddenly becomes unsafe. Or sometimes organizations are even victim of unsavory fiduciaries. Obviously, we don't see that very often, but it does happen. So how are we going to necessarily plan for all contingencies that can happen there, including running out of money to keep the operation going as anticipated. And that honestly, in like in this situation, despite what I just said, is kind of the most obvious question, right? If you're Albert Barnes's estate planner and he's put in all these rules saying people can come in once a week and there can only be X people in at once and you can only charge them this. Well, it's just simple math to look at it and be like, well, rent costs this much <laughs> and sure, sure. to say like, how's this going to work out? And would Albert Barnes have preferred to allow more people in at a time or preferred to have partnered perhaps with the city of Philadelphia or even with the Philadelphia Museum of Art to transport people easily from Philadelphia to Marion in that suburb where he was located rather than have the artwork moved. And I think that you know people describe Albert Barnes as being someone who got what he wanted and who might not have been particularly open to hearing different perspectives. But I think that this is the kind of thing where if someone brought in this concept for an estate plan, you'd have to push back if the individual wasn't willing to sort of look at the different contingencies and plan for them. And I think that, you know, now we have the example of Albert Barnes. If someone doesn't want to plan for different contingencies, we can say, okay, but if these unforeseen things happen, we want to know, we most like your opinion on what should happen, because that can be instructive for how changes should be made. And if you don't provide it, you're leaving it up to the court and you're leaving it up to whoever might be in charge of these assets or your plan 80 to 100 years after your death. And that's probably someone who has no personal connection with you. You know, as you can see in the Barnes case, the, the smallest possible change or the most closely adhering to your wishes can be nowhere near what his wishes clearly would have been, right? I might have to imagine the last possible thing he wanted was for his art to go to the sort of quote unquote elites in the Philadelphia Museum. It's also possible that that was the best way to do it. No, you know, it, it's sort of a, a weird situation where even sometimes, you know, the, the closest possible best solution can be the, the last thing that person would want if they haven't specified. Right, exactly. I mean, he might have wanted everything to be sold and wound down if it got to this point, but 
we'll never know because obviously it wasn't anticipated that the endowment would deplete to the point that they were in grave financial trouble. But these are the kind of questions that we need to think of as estate planners. And that's why we that's why we study things. That's why we read case law. People might not have been as aware of these problems back in 1922 or back, uh, you know, when this estate plan was initially created. But we have the benefit of an extra hundred or so years of history to guide us in making estate plans. Yeah. And obviously, I don't think that most of our listeners have clients with $25 billion art collections that they're going to have to worry about this about, unless you do, in which case awesome. Why the hell are you listening to me? You know, I think this concept of what Barnes was doing, this the idea of dead hand control and sort of the risks inherent in that and the natural idea that that, that sort of the natural tendency towards of powerful people to want to do that is, is something that can be instructive for all advisors, regardless of whether you're working on a state plan or not. So Jack, do you mind just talking about the idea of the dead hand a little bit and what that means? A good way to phrase it, it's essentially trying to control beyond your death what happens to your assets. As we discussed at the beginning of this podcast, it works best for a shorter amount of time. And the longer it's been since your death, the harder it can be. For example, sometimes clients will want a particular financial firm or financial advisor to be working on their assets. That usually works fine if it's just going to be your estate. But if you have perhaps a lengthy trust, and you might not even think you have a lengthy trust, you mentioned that most listeners probably don't have huge art collections to dispose of. But if you have younger people in your life, either children, nieces and nephews, whoever, even the children of family friends who might be inheriting from you, you have to anticipate that if these kids are three years old today, you might be putting something in your estate plan that has assets in them for trust until they're 35, 40. So that's going to be a fairly lengthy amount of time. And if you're restricting to certain financial advisors, we don't know what could happen with that. For example, people retire, financial firms merge and go under, and it might not be clear what to do in those situations. So I do try to draft with a certain amount of flexibility to address these issues. But aside from the drafting, I try to take really detailed notes on why we're doing something and what the client actually wants in case we do get into this issue. Because, you know, people, and we've talked about this in our other podcasts, when people are disposing of assets at their death, whatever amount it is, it tends to be their life work, their life's work. And it also, even if they're leaving $100,000, which might not be much to certain people, but if they're leaving $100,000 to a much younger person who's been a, a big part of their life, you know, they want to see it work for that person in the best way possible. There's a lot that can go into creating a, an estate plan. And especially if someone wants to exercise this sort of post-mortem control over their assets that might not be 100% legally enforceable. It might not be in the documents, but I think we as estate planners need to not only get this information about what a client is trying to do, but also make sure that we retain it in a way that it's going to come back to us 15 years later when we might need to actually implement the plan, or even it needs to be available to another attorney who will be implementing the plan. Yeah. And even though we're talking about certain things you keep saying may not be legally enforceable, that doesn't mean just ignore it, right? Once you get into these questions about an estate, even if it's a seemingly obvious question on its face, once the person isn't there to explain it, everything gets very, very vague. So at that point, even if something is not, even I have these documents that say do this, 
that aren't in the will of the trust, you know, they may not be legally enforceable, but it's like when we're sitting here trying to figure out and piece together what this person would have wanted, what their intent was of this dead person who's not there to tell us, then all the evidence that we have, even if not one piece can't be like, you can't slam it on the table and be like, this means this, we're going to do this. It, it just all adds up to sort of, okay, well, now this can inform this decision, even if it's kind of out of our hands. Right. It goes to what are the donor's ends? What are the goals of the person making an estate plan? You create a plan to implement those ends and those goals, but having a detailed accounting of what those goals are can be instructive on applying the doctrine of deviation when needed. I mean, this the doctrine of deviation kicked in here because for the fairly obvious, and I have to assume probably the most common reason that we see this is that there just wasn't enough money to, you know, or at least allegedly wasn't enough money to keep the foundation going. What are some other reasons maybe the trust may be modified? really depends on the circumstances. We talked about putting a certain financial advisor into a trust. Well, that person might unexpectedly retire. You might have a case where, you know, so recently California started taxing trusts based on the location of a trustee in California. So you might have a close family friend who you wanted to be the trustee of your testamentary trust and you created your will before this was going to be an issue, or you appointed, let's say, a New York resident trustee, and then that person moves to California, suddenly they can be there and all of a sudden California is trying to impose an income tax obligation, a state income tax obligation on the trust based on the location of the trustee. In that case, you would probably want to remove the trustee. You might also have something in there to the effect of monies to be distributed to so-and-so at age 25. Well, when you made the trust, so-and-so might be doing fine. However, when someone reaches age 25, they might be going through a contentious divorce. They might be having legal trouble. They might simply not be in a position to inherit a large amount of money. It's good to create, and you can actually do this in a document, create some flexibility for trustees to withhold distributions that have been mandated in your documents if certain unforeseen circumstances arise. And you can say, such as contentious divorce, such as this person is has a guardian appointed for them. Um, and you can also say for other unforeseen circumstances. And yes, you're giving a certain amount of leeway to your trustees, but you're also providing the best possibility for your goals being met because it's rarely going to be someone's goal that a person they care about gets a certain amount of money so that that person they've cared about can either have it taken from them right away or can blow it. Yeah, and I'm building this flexibility even though it sort of cuts directly against maybe what the instinct of the sort of a dead hand controlly wants, really the most realistic way to, to sort of to build in flexibility into your estate, right? You can't, what's the other option? Is it you're going to have a trust that's 50,000 pages long and reads like some crazy choose your adventure book? Or it's like, if this, then this, then this, right, then this. Right. And that's just for some things, sure, for the big things that are obviously going to happen, maybe it's some of the big dangers where it's like, oh, if I run out of money, then that's fine. But for anticipating future legal changes or anything like that, or what your, your four generations down the line descendants are going to do and what, what the world is even going to be like. Mm -hmm. so it's just really more realistic to sort of pick the correct trustee and then empower them to do things. I think that's why we've seen sort of in a lot of areas, the growth and popularity of like the trust protector of this person mm -hmm. who just kind of like overall watches over everyone involved in the trust. And it's kind of like, I'm going to make sure that the intent is followed kind of, even if I'm not individually working with anything. And I think sometimes people create estate plans thinking that whoever will be implementing it will always be someone that they've known, or it will always be their child. That's not always the case. You know, people have different reasons that they want to step out of certain positions. And 
even without the person wanting to step down, sometimes circumstances change so that someone that you've appointed or that you know can no longer implement your plan. And that's why I think careful planning and detailing of your wishes is important because if you, for example, have a fiduciary trust company stepping in, that's not going to be someone you've known. They're more stepping in as an entity or in a business capacity, but at the same time, it helps for them to receive letters of wishes or other written documentation on what your actual goals are. Because you also, you you can read a document that's been drafted for you, but you know what your goals are. So it might make perfect sense to you what should be done based on the reading of the document, but someone taking it over and reading it 30 years later might have a completely different interpretation of the same verbiage. And this is the, uh, it's like a stupid family guy joke, right? About the, the right to bear arms, where it's just like, it's the two founding fathers being like, how much more obviously could we make this? Every family has a right to have a pair of stuffed bear arms hanging on their wall. <laughs> and then just it like pans up to like two stuffed bear arms sticking out of the wall. Yeah. This is this idea, like that's a very silly version of it. But a little bit more serious, like I guess like the Tom Petty, like what does equal mean thing that came up in that case where it's just like he knew what equal meant, he knew what he meant, but now having even that, that seemingly simple thing written down, taking out take him out of the equation. Well, what did he mean by equal? So Jackie, we're just about running out of time here, but I think sort of the general theme of this episode has been that, you know, the longer you want a plan or you intend a plan to, to affect and to last into the future, the sort of more problems can arise and the more difficult it can be to, to sort of make that plan, ensure, ensure that that plan meets the wishes of, of the deceased. What's like the, the one thing we can take away from here that, that planners really need to watch out for when they're trying to look so far into the future? I think that you need to do a lot of troubleshooting when you're looking very far into the future. One thing I would do if I had a plan like this with very specific goals in mind is once it's drafted, have someone who doesn't know what the client's goals are, review it and see what they think the, the goals are and they, how they think that this would be administered and make sure that they're able to tell and whatever they're not able to discern from your documents might need to be revised or you might need to go back to the client with that and see how you can make it more clear. And I think just constant communication with clients and getting their wishes down, taking really detailed notes. That's, that's always helpful. It's helpful today in drafting the documents and it's going to be helpful in the future in getting all of this down. And I think also just planning for contingencies, thinking outside of the box to not just what could happen in the next five years, but what could happen in the next 50 years. And is it worth the extra time to address it and to come up with plans A, B, and C? Of course, in, in the case of a Barnes Foundation, yes, it would have been worth the extra time. That's all the time we have, folks. I'd like to thank Jackie Rivalwaco for joining us once again and for once again being a great guest. Thanks a lot, Dave. And you know, I just want to quickly mention COVID-19 uh, in terms of estate planning. I know that people are a little nervous, understandably, at this time. And I just wanted to remind everyone that recently the ability to witness certain documents such as wills and healthcare proxies has been moved to allow audiovisual contemporaneous witnessing without actually having the witnesses present. We also have a similar rule that is in effect through, I believe, May 7th for uh, notarization of documents. So I just want to remind everyone that Estate planners are open for business in terms of getting these documents done for you if you need help in this troubling time. And anything that can uh, give people a little peace of mind is always great, especially if it's just a good idea in the first place. So definitely take that under advisement. Right. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me on, Dave. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for coming on. 
for the audience. I'll see you, or I guess you'll hear me on the next episode of wealthmanagement.com's Celebrity Estates, Wills of the Rich and Famous. Thank you for listening to the Celebrity Estates, Wills of the Rich and Famous podcast. Click the subscribe button below to become notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guests and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of InformaWealthManagement.com. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning.